0: It's a glorious thing. Uh, let me add to the joy of all of that by letting you know where we are with our Journey of Faith Capital campaign commitments for the coming year. A really exciting thing is over 80% of our families have signed on for next year, and that is um, $206,535.10 towards our mortgage. That's more than last year. Um, and that what that means is um, what the bank asks of us each year, and then we, we give away 10% of this money. We give it away. Next year, it's going to go to begin uh, training church planters for a local church plant in our area, as well as one in the Czech Republic. Um, so we'll give away 10% of those monies. Even after doing that, we're still going to pay $70,000 more than what our bank requires towards our mortgage next year. So that's very, very encouraging. Um, Add on top of that, there are 50 families and singles in our church who are on board but can't give right now. So as God prospers them this year, we expect our giving to even increase, and I am still holding out for the remaining 20% of you to join us in this, and let's, let's put this debt away so we can really serve God. But we have much to be thankful for. We should give thanks, and I want to do that from First Chronicles 29, if you'll bow with me in prayer. We read that David, King David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, praise be to you O Lord God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Yours O Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours O Lord is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth And honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, this year we have preached over 30 sermons out of the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've been here, um, you've experienced a good number of those. You've also sat in on perhaps over 30 small group discussions on the book of 1 Corinthians. You've read personally the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I have one last question for you on this last exposure to 1 Corinthians this year. And that is, what is your takeaway? What is the one thing that you must do in response to the book of 1 Corinthians and its teaching. What is the thing you must do in order to avoid the condemnation that James writes about in James chapter 1? He says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. And this plagues us more than, more than we are aware of. You know, you, you come here, you hear a sermon. You go across the parking lot, you go to a class. Later this week, maybe on the radio or online, you might hear another sermon you go to small group and you'll study the Bible. you read it in the mornings when you get up and hopefully at night before you go to bed. Some of you are students and you're going to go to chapel every day at Southeastern and hear the word preached in between classes that teach you the Bible. And somewhere along the line, you figure out you can't apply it all. And somewhere along the line, you fall into the trap of not applying it at all. And that we must not do. Today, we want to make sure that doesn't happen here at Northwake with the teaching from 1 Corinthians. So again, you've got one question this morning. What is the one thing I must take away and do in response to the teaching of the book of 1 Corinthians? So let me invite you. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to kind of drop in and out five different times through the entire book of 1 Corinthians this morning with that intent of prompting you to remember and to obey what God has been saying to you personally Uh, through this study we've undertaken together as church family. So let me pray for that task. Uh, Let's pray. God, help us now to remember and to obey. For your name's sake. Amen. Amen. All right. This year we've been talking about being the church and that's how the book of 1 Corinthians has served us to help us see what it is that God is calling us to be as a church family. We're going to walk through the book of 1 Corinthians based on this outline. Think of the book of 1 Corinthians as a file cabinet with five drawers in it. First drawer is the first four chapters. It's about unity. The second drawer are chapters 5 and 6. He addresses immorality. Chapters 7 through 10 in the third drawer, liberty. 11 through 14, he addresses worship in that fourth drawer. And then the last drawer, gospel and resurrection in chapters 15 and 16. So I'm going to walk through each one of those and lift out some excerpts from a sermon that I preached earlier this year that was preached earlier this year by someone and remind you of what it is that God might have been saying to you. You may be tempted to say, I've heard that before. That's not the point. This is not about hearing something new. This is about being reminded what God has said to you and following through on it. So you should leave today fixed in your mind with an understanding of what it is you must do in response to what God's been saying to you through the book of 1 Corinthians. So in this first drawer, first four chapters, he's addressing Problems surrounding unity in the church. And he calls the church to forsake our divisive spiritual pride. Right away in the first chapter, we'll drop into this section there. And Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united and in the same mind, same judgment, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers, my brothers, What I mean is that each each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or even I follow Christ. Now, when when I went through this passage earlier in the year, I likened this to the kind of thinking that lies behind people that buy designer brands of clothes. Things like Gucci or Calvin Klein or Ralph Lauren or Christian Dior, designer luxury labels. You pay more with the idea that you'll get more, a better quality product. Not just about designer brands. This, this is brand names um, even beyond that, and it's not just ladies. Guys do it. If you're going to buy a lawnmower, nothing runs like a deer. Exactly. And when you buy that fleece, it's got the little North Face logo on it. The idea being, we hope we'll get a better product. But we also hope we get a little ego boost. So when we mow with our John Deere mowers and drive our Lexus, you are what you drive. Image is everything, or so we're told. And so we're hoping we're going to enhance our social status and our self-identity as we ride out on our lawnmowers. At some point, the label of the item we are buying can become more important than the item itself. It's not just a purse, it's a Gucci. It's not just coffee, it's Starbucks. It's not just a donut, it's Krispy Kreme. But when the label matters more than the product itself... When we buy for what we think it will do for us, when we buy in order to be associated with that label, in some twisted way, we start to feel superior to people who drive other lawnmowers and eat other donuts. Okay? We, this can become a basis for discrimination, for looking down on someone, for feeling superior. It's a spawning ground for pride. And something similar is going on in the church in Corinth when Paul wrote his letter to them. Their quarrels were happening around personalities. Some were saying, I'm more spiritual because I'm connected with Paul. No, I'm more spiritual because I'm with Peter. No, I'm more spiritual. I'm with Jesus. And what is fueling all this kind of stuff? It's like, remember little kids out in the front yard? My dad's better than your dad? What that means is, I'm better than you because I'm with my dad. The same kind of thing is playing out in the church. Um, Only here it's about spiritual leaders. I'm more spiritual than you because I am of Paul or Apollos or Peter or even Christ. This is driven by competition. I want to be more spiritual than you. My pastor is better than your pastor. My worship team is better than your worship team. My denomination is better than your denomination. It's contrary to the way of Christ. There's no place for competition in the body of Christ. Which is the way it's to be lived out in the way of Christ. The way of humility. The way that considers others more important than me. It's also fueled by usurpation where allegiance to a man or an ideology usurps an allegiance to Christ. The label matters more than the purse. The emblem matters more than the car. The pastor, the teacher, or the author matters more than the Savior. Paul presses it in the next verse. He says, Is Christ divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? No. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. It's about Christ, he says. Not about your favorite pastor or theologian or denomination. It's about Jesus Christ who loved you and set you free from your sins by his blood. So, are you dividing the body of Christ by your pride? Do you exclude people that aren't of your stripe? Do you think that your brand is superior to their brand? Are you dividing the body of Christ by your prideful superiority by association? In the first drawer, Paul is intent on protecting the unity of the body of Christ by rebuking our spiritual pride. Has God been speaking to you this year about your pride? If he has, what must you do about that? That's the first drawer. The second drawer, having called us to humility, now he calls us to purity. And there's a handful of verses in chapter 6 that bring this out really well, starting in verse 12. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Flee sexual immorality. Paul says, yes, there's great freedom in Christ, but it's limited by the law of love. Love one another as I have loved you, Jesus says. Paul would say, consider others more important than you. Our freedom is constrained by its helpfulness. It's constrained by love. At the risk of being Captain Obvious here, we can say sexual immorality is not helpful. Paul says, it will enslave you. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Flee sexual immorality. Because affairs are extremely difficult to end. The snare is set very deep. Pornography viewing is very hard to stop. Testimony before the Senate Subcommittee on Science, Technology and Space called porn the most concerning thing to psychological health that I know of existing today, said the lady from the University of Pennsylvania. She said pornography affects, or addicts rather, have a psychological, um, psychologically more difficult time recovering from their addiction than cocaine addicts, since coke users can get the drug out of their system, but porn images stay in the brain for a long time. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It wants to master you. Like it did, you remember that Russian man, Vladimir Vilasov, who had his coffin designed to accommodate his pornography collection. He said, these girls in these magazines have been my companions for years and I want them to accompany me in the next life. Sexual immorality wants to enslave you. And it will if you keep it secret and don't repent fully, if you keep letting it or her or him keep hanging around. What does Christ want you to do in response to this teaching? Do you remember? What does he want you to do? Third drawer has to do with liberty. We looked here at things about faithfulness in marriage and devotion to Christ as a single and ethical choices. Um, In chapter 9, though, Paul calls us to lay down our rights for the gospel. You remember these verses from chapter 9? Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, Paul says, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things, to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And when we taught through this passage, I asked you to think about it this way, in terms of someone moving into your neighborhood. Moving truck pulls up, new neighbors start to unload, and the idea occurs to you that you should cross the street and introduce yourself. You can tell a lot about them, even from your house, just by what they unload, by what they drive, by what they wear, by how they look, by how they talk. You can tell if they're Yankees or Southerners, you can tell if they're richer or poorer than you are. You can tell if they're loud or quiet, if they smoke or drink, if they're black or white or Hispanic. You can tell if they're church folk or likely not. You can tell if they have kids or not. You can tell if their kids are going to be trouble or not. You can tell if they have tattoos or not, if they like hip-hop or country, if they ride motorcycles or have a boat, if they root for your team or not. You can tell if they like Obama or not. Bumper stickers. You can tell a lot just from your house without ever crossing the street. And it just might be that you see something or hear something that gives you pause that makes you not want to cross the street. That makes you wonder if you should cross the street. Maybe even wonder if it's even safe to cross the street. Something that makes you think, oh no, there goes the neighborhood. Can you think of something like that? Something that could be unloaded off of that truck that would make you pause and rethink crossing the street, if you can think of such a thing that might give you pause, and if we are thinking right and are being honest, almost all of us can think of something, then the Apostle Paul is saying to us today, for the love of God, cross the street. He holds himself up as an example for the church, for us. He says at the end of this section, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is intentionally living his life to reach as many with the gospel as possible. Five or six times he says it in the back of chapter 9. I do this to win some that I might save some. And he says to me, he says to us, follow my example, cross the street. Follow my example. In verse 19, he says, I do this from the posture of a servant. I have made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. The gospel advances by means of humble servants not by great orators or debaters, helpful as they are. The many are won to Christ by those of us who will adopt the posture of humble servants. And as Paul said, already we've seen it, he does that for everyone. Whether they're Jews or under the law or without the law or the weak, everyone Paul says, I want to win everyone no matter what their background, their skin color, their political persuasion, or their bank account. For the love of God, Paul says, I will cross the street. I will cross any street. And he enters their world at every permissible point, at every opportunity, Paul's crossing the street to share the good news of Christ and the love of Christ with his neighbors. What stops you from crossing the street? from entering someone's world to lead them to Christ? Is it their race? Is it the way they dress? Is it their politics? Is it because they can't speak much English? Or they drink beer on the porch? Or they listen to music too late and too loud? What stops you from crossing the street or the hallway or the ocean to share the love of Christ? Is there somewhere you won't go? Is there someone you won't have in your home for dinner? Paul says, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What must you do in response to this teaching? What has God been saying to you? Fourth drawer it's about worship. And in this section, you remember, we talked about everything from head coverings to the Lord's Supper to love and speaking in tongues and prophecy. But there's a section in chapter 12 that really lines out for us this idea of being the church. In chapter 12, verse 27, Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, a prophet, first apostles, Second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No. No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, he says, and I'll show you a still more excellent way. This is the beautiful tension that is the church. We are collectively the body of Christ, but individually we are members of it. The church is a collective reality. We together are the church. I am not the church. You individually are not the church. But we together are the church, and you and I are individually members of it. Paul has been emphasizing in chapter 12 some very specific things about what it means for us to be the church, to be the body of Christ. He says it means that we belong together. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 12, he says, If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. We are inseparably bound together. You can't opt out of being part of the church if you believe in Christ. It's kind of like family. You can be a dysfunctional family member or a good one, but you're a family member. You'll always be family, and that's true of the church. This is what you were saved into. This is where you belong as part of the church. This is where you belong. By the body of Christ, we mean we belong together, not isolated from each other. We also mean we need each other when we say we are the body of Christ. He says in verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You may remember the story that we told when we went through this before about former Navy pilot Charlie Plum. He's eating in a restaurant. guy, a couple tables over, staring at him. And finally, the guy gets up, walks over to his table, and he says, you're Captain Plum. I looked up and said, yes, sir, I am Captain Plum. He says, you flew fighters in Vietnam. You were on an aircraft carrier, Kitty Hawk, and you were shot down. You parachuted into enemy hands and spent six years as a prisoner of war. Plum said, how in the world did you know all that? He said, because I packed your parachute. Plum says, I was speechless. I staggered to my feet and held out a very grateful hand of thanks, and the guy came up with just the proper words. He grabbed my hand, he pumped my arm, and he said, I guess it worked. (laughs) And I I said, yes, sir, indeed it did. And then he said, "I, I didn't sleep much that night. I kept thinking about that man. I wondered how many times I might have seen him and not even said, good morning, how are you, or anything. Because, you see, I was a fighter pilot. He was just a sailor. I could have cared less until one day my parachute came along and he packed it for me. And then he asked this question that he's renowned for. Who's packing your parachute? Spiritually speaking, relationally speaking, it is the people in this room. It is the church, the body of Christ, who is packing your parachute. The people in your small group. One day you'll need that parachute. One day you'll you'll need those people. Or at least one day you'll know you do. You'll be in a waiting room at some hospital or in a living room wondering where the mortgage payment will come from or on the phone wondering if your child is safe. Someday you'll need the parachute that is the body of Christ. The easily forgotten reality is that we need each other. We really do need each other every day. We need each other this day. And together we are the body of Christ today. Only together can we be the church to a watching world. We need each other. When we say we're the body of Christ, we mean that we need each other. We also mean we are not like each other. Verse 18 says, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. Verse 19 says, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Visit one of our small groups. One of the things you'll be aware of as is, is you sit in that room is, how on earth did these people ever end up in the same room at the same time? And This is the most, you know, ragtag, widely diverse lot you've ever encountered. They're from different parts of the country. They're from a different social demographic. They're different levels of maturity, different stage of life. There they are together, though. We are different from each other. One of us in our small group can teach. One of us can sing. One of us outstanding at serving. One can administrate. One is generous beyond belief. We are not like each other. When we say we're the body of Christ, we don't mean we're all the same. We're radically different. But we also mean that we are undivided. Paul says in verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. When we say we are the body of Christ, it means we are undivided. We refuse to turn on each other. We refuse to turn from each other. We refuse to gossip about each other, to avoid one another, to remain unreconciled with each other, to withdraw from one another. We are designed by God to be one, no division. As the body of Christ, we work hard to protect that. We, though we are wildly different, we are to be undivided. And lastly, Paul urges us that if we are the body of Christ, that means that we care deeply for one another. The same section, he says, God has so composed the body that the members may have the same care For one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And again, you see this in our small groups. When someone suffers, they all suffer. There are tears and prayers and sacrifice and late night phone calls and all kinds of suffering that goes on mutually. There's shared resources, there's cash passed around. It happens in our small group. Suffering is shared there. And rejoicing is shared there. There are parties and gatherings and lots of baby showers in our small groups. We rejoice together. We suffer together. We rejoice together because the body of Christ, as the body of Christ, we care deeply for each other. That's what we do. This is what it means to be the body of Christ to belong together to need each other, to be different from each other, to be undivided and care deeply for each other. Is that true of you here? What must you do in response to this teaching? Last drawer, Resurrection, and you could add... And gospel. In the first part of that, Paul unfolds the gospel, the good news. He says, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's what we mean when we talk about the gospel. When someone asks you what the gospel is, it's not a trick question. It's not even a hard question. It's a very, very important question. Paul says, if you mess this question up, then you've believed in vain. This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. Let's Say it with me. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. That's what unites us as followers of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And the reason it's such good news is that there's such bad news. We are all exceptional sinners. You and me, we have all sinned. Paul would write in the book of Romans, there's no distinction. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin is far worse than we think it is most days. In a word, our sin is unbearable. If we would choose to bear our own sin, it would destroy us. Ezekiel says that the soul that sins is the one that dies. We can bear our own sins, but it will crush us with what the Bible describes as intolerable, eternal suffering and destruction. Jesus says, if you don't obey me, you will stay in the wrath of God. But there's an alternative. There is one who in love has borne that penalty for us, has borne our sins for us. Peter says, when Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's good news. We don't have to bear our own sin. Christ has borne It for us. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. What do you need to do in response to this gospel? For some of you, what you need to do is to believe. To trust that yes, Jesus died for your sins. And he was buried, and he rose from the dead. And if you will trust in him, you too will rise to newness of life now and forevermore. Do you believe that? So, that's the book of 1 Corinthians flyby. But what is the thing that God has been saying to you through this letter? about your pride or your, your purity, about loving those neighbors across the street or about being the church, about this gospel and the hope of the resurrection? What is the one thing that you must do in response to this mountain of teaching that we've had on 1 Corinthians? We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and we do that to remember what Christ has done for us, the depth of his love for us, and to worship him. As we do that, let's worship him also by remembering what he has been saying to us this year through the book of 1 Corinthians and offering our obedience in that to him as worship. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, grant grace to us that we might hear and remember and not forget. That we might obey and give you glory and not disobey and bring shame upon you. Clarify in our minds now what is the thing that you have been speaking to us. God, may your spirit bring it with great clarity into our mind and give us faithfulness to follow through on that thing even this day as we leave this place. We offer this worship to you in Christ's name. Together we remember that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It's broken for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he explained that this was his blood which was shed for forgiveness of sins. And we're to do this also in remembrance of him. At North Wake, the Lord's the table of the Lord's Supper is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ who is walking in fellowship to him, with him. Um, and some of you may say, oh, but I've had a horrible week. This is like the worst week ever, um, then you need to come to the table. This is a week you need the Lord's table more than ever. And the table is open to great sinners like you and like me. What it's not open to is unrepentant sinners. So if you will hang on to your sin and will not repent of it and refuse to fight against it, though you would fight imperfectly then this table, that's a, that's a precursor to the table. But if you are willing to repent of your sin and confess it to your God and seek mercy and grace and strength by communing with Christ at his table and remembering him, then this table is for you no matter what your week was like. And as you come, bring as an offering to the Lord this act of obedience that he's brought to your mind today. And you can use the time of meditation to fix that in your mind and get clear on that and then bring that to him. You may choose to Remain at the steps and pray as you partake of the Lord's Supper if you'd like, or you can do that in your seat. But let's worship our King now as we partake of the Supper.
1: It's going mm-hmm. down.